Welcome to this week's NinersNation.com Better Rivals Podcast. My name is Oscar. My name is David. And it is another Womp Womp Wednesday. It is a sad, sad day to be a 49ers fan. Uh, it was a butt whipping at CenturyLink, much like... Yeah, well, I mean, I didn't expect... I expect a loss, but not a butt whipping. Um, we've got injuries all over the place. We've got an offense that looks absolutely inept. And all in all, it is the 49ers that we thought we would see rearing its ugly head early on this year uh, in a game that was really quite embarrassing. It could have it could have it could have been different. It could have been different. And yet here we are. Same old shit, different week uh, with a subpar offense, a defense that doesn't even know how to align itself and a quarterback that doesn't know when his running back is on the field. Uh, it, it does feel a little bit more womp womp than normal. You know, like there, there are some womp womp Wednesdays that are just like, meh, you know, this kind of sucks. This one, this one, uh, this one sucks real bad. No, there's not a yeah. lot of fun things to talk about from this game. There's not a lot of positives to pull. Like, it's hard to even watch this game beyond the first half. Uh, it, it was not fun. It was absolutely atrocious. Definitely not off to a good start from the get-go. But first, let's get to the rundown, which is basically a list of injuries. One, of course, is Anthony Davis retires once again due to his concussions. This is now twice in 15 months that he's retired. Uh, he had a tweet about wanting to keep his mind and his body. I forget exactly who he quoted, but uh, I think this is the the nail in the proverbial Anthony Davis coffin. I, I don't expect that he'll be back, and even if he does want to come back, I would imagine that Trent Baalke would trade his contract for peanuts. Yeah, I mean, at this point, there there's certainly no reason to expect him back, and uh, like you mentioned, if he does, you, you certainly can't expect him to stick around at this point. I mean, on one hand, uh, good for him. I mean, he needs to do what he feels is best for his body and, and for, you know, the, like there's there's more to life than just playing football, and he obviously understands that. Um, and so he's putting his health kind of first, and, and that should be applauded on one hand. On the other hand, uh, it, it is kind of tough to deal with that from just a purely football standpoint of having this guy come back, you know, thinking that he's going to be able to slot in and play uh, and you're going to be able to expect like a certain level of contribution from him. And then, you know, immediately here before we're even a month into the season, now he's gone again. So that part definitely sucks. But uh, again, he needs to do what he feels is best for him. I'm not I'm not too torn up about the fact that he's gone, to be honest with you, because I think that he was a, a non-factor so far this season insofar as that he hasn't played. And and really, he was a backup who was only going to take time away from someone like Joshua Garnett as an interior lineman. So really, at this point, as much as it sucks, and, and while I'm glad for Anthony Davis that he has you know kind of made his choice and he's good with his choice and, and go do your thing. Honestly, from a football perspective, I don't think it affects us all that much. I think Trent Brown is entrenched as the as the right tackle, and this allows Joshua Garnett to really become perhaps more of that interior guy who's got to learn both the left and the right, and so he can be that that primary interior backup and eventually wrest the job away from hopefully one Mr. Zane Beatles who has the prime job, the David Newman job, of tapping the center on the thigh to get the snap <laughs> off. I can do that one. Yeah, I mean, I think from a football perspective, obviously, the, the next injury is really or Anthony Davis is injury related, I guess, uh, to some extent. But the, the the bigger news from a football perspective is Jimmy Ward's injury, um, you know, week to week right now with a quad strain. Um, this is somebody that obviously we've been uh, excited about for a little while now and, and really seemed to be coming into his own this year and uh, looked like one of the these players that have been drafted in the last few drafts that 
was actually ready to kind of take a step forward and and become a player that really stood out on this defense and uh now to have to deal with injuries and and who knows if he's going to play this week right really at this point um but this feels like something that could kind of nag you know these sort of soft tissue injuries like that um seem to be something that can kind of linger on throughout the season so um you know you hope it's not too serious and that it's not something that really uh debilitates him for the rest of the year I'm interested to see now who ends up coming in as a backup because you're right. I think Jimmy Ward was easily the best cornerback on the roster. And I think the defense was better when he moved into the slot and we had someone else on on the outside, whether that was Reeser um, or whether that was Dante Johnson. Now, having him not available at all, which at this point, I don't think the 49ers should rush him back. I think they should just let him heal no need to play him against the Cowboys. Really, there's no need to play any starter that gets injured this year because this year is just <laughs> I, I'd rather I'd rather angle for that draft position, which no yep. GM and no coach would ever do. And I and I get that, right? But as a fan, I'm just like, dude, just let him sit out two, three weeks. It's okay. Let's as let's a fan, get some I'm like, PT. You seen that quarterback play because damn. <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm interested to see then what Chris Davis can do in the slot, what someone like a Reeser or Richard Robinson does out on the edge, because now you're going to get some, some youth and some experience in there. Um, and, and this is really what this season, frankly, is all about at this point. It's getting some key pieces experience so that you can begin to actually look more competent and actually compete for wins on a regular basis next year. Yeah, I think that if you're, if you're looking for a silver lining with that, that's absolutely where, where it is because um after ward and you know i guess is some and at least the coaching staff seems to feel this way as well like brock was has always been pretty entrenched as kind of that number two guy and the other starter um but after that there wasn't really a lot of separation between a lot of those guys that were were on the depth chart so uh i i think by removing jimmy ward from the equation even if it's just for a week or two and getting some of these other guys uh some more significant playing time hopefully that allows that situation to sort itself out a little bit and we can see some guys start to separate and see who's going to be, uh, like you mentioned, somebody that, that this team can rely on years into the future uh, beyond just this lost, probably 2016 season. And now the final move is going to be that the 49ers signed wide receiver punt returner Keyshawn Martin uh, still throws me off anything. Anytime I see, I see Keyshawn, I always immediately think of the other more famous Keyshawn, but this is not that Keyshawn. He did not come out of retirement. You just uh, want to say Johnson. I mean, I do. I, w- I want another Johnson on 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 the on the <laughs> roster, some way, shape, or form. I'm just going to collect a bunch of Johnsons. That's really what this is about. I want to collect a bunch of Johnsons. I want to draft it and field an all Johnson team, and then just have announcers give all kind of Johnson jokes all day or day, and then the better rivals drinking game will be its its peak. If we, we've had Max Blaine, we've had Peak Ponder, and now we're going to have, like, you know, the best Better Rivals drinking game. I mean, we're not trying to kill people here. Like, we, we <laughs> I, I think that's what would happen. If we had that many Johnsons, uh, people would die. <laughs> there'd, be, there'd be dead 49ers fans in the streets. Like, there's Dude, we no have, other We have a rule that says you drink when, when Blaine Gabbert throws short of the sticks. Okay? We really we're, should have revised that to be honest. We're, I'm telling we you. may already be trying to kill uh, people. Yeah. But at this point, I mean, Keyshawn Martin is another street guy. This reminds me of the running back situation last year where you're signing a guy off the street and he may immediately play a big role in your offense. That's worrisome. This wide receiver core is an absolute dumpster fire. 
And when Torrey Smith had a tweaked ankle and was out for a play or two, I thought that's it. That's it. Our starting wide receivers <laughs> at this point, you know, are, are Jeremy Curley, Quentin Patton, and your grandmother. <laughs> Me, I'm going to go try out. I'm going to be, I'm going to go hang out with the two guys that are waiting outside the stadium trying to get a tryout. I'm going to go do that and play receiver. That's what's yeah, going to happen. You should just go out and, and hold the cardboard sign. I'll throw in as a, I'll make sure to mention, right? Like, Hey, I can also tap the center on the leg when it's time to snap. <laughs> if you want me to do that, it'll be the world's first time a wide receiver lines up at left guard. Now I'll just do it running by, you know, come in motion, be like, Hey, give him a little slap on the ass. Time to go. Well, a little good game. Just remember, yeah. never cup, never linger. Those no. are the two rules. Never cup, never linger. Uh, but who is Keyshawn Martin? He's a guy who uh, he was signed with the New England Patriots. Uh, he was with Houston for a few years before that. He was actually given a $600,000 signing bonus in New England, but still couldn't stick on the roster. He was eventually cut um, so that the Patriots could keep a, a rookie wide receiver and, and a tight end. So this is someone who maybe has some promise. At least Bill Belichick thought he had some promise. But at the end of the day, it wasn't good enough to stay on the roster. And now he's on the 49ers roster. And who knows? He could be the next 100-yard receiver for your San Francisco 49ers. Wait, the next? So the first? Well, you've got Jeremy Curley, who has 114 or so yards on the year. Oh, okay. We're talking 100 yards for the season. That makes a lot yeah. more sense now. Okay. 100 got yards it. for the year. Uh, which I think currently ranks like 92nd in the NFL. Um, our leading receiver, Jeremy, don't call me Mo Curly, is le- leading, pacing the team, 92nd in the league. <laughs> Receivers, the, it's in a good state right now. It's fine. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's let's talk about the Seahawks then. And as a reminder, we're going to give you the three biggest takeaways, and we're going to give you a spotlight player of the week before we get into the stat of the week. So let's talk about that Seattle game because from the get-go, one of the biggest takeaways was that this defense, a defense that we thought was promising, a defense that we were thinking, you know what, this is a defense that could go into Seattle and give a limping Seattle some fits. Maybe not shut them down entirely, but put them in a state where it looked like the Niners could have a chance to win, and instead, the 49ers came out, completely rolled over, and were spotting them 14 points before half of the first quarter was done. I mean, that was definitely the most surprising, I think most notable thing about this game because we talked about before, the offense looking like crap was not a surprise. Like, that should not be a surprise to anyone. We we expected them to pretty much get shut down by the Seattle defense. I mean, the Seattle defense is, uh, has kind of historically started a little bit slow, but this was not the season that they've done that. So they were already kind of mid-season form uh, over the first couple of weeks and, and were playing very well. So that was was very much expected behavior and expected outcome. Um, The defense getting just absolutely shredded was a surprise. I mean, like you mentioned, we we didn't really expect this defense to be great necessarily, like some top 10 defense. But we we did expect them to move from, okay, this is one of the worst defenses in football to we're going to be competent and hover around, you know, kind of league average style performance. Um, and, And it made sense that they would take that sort of leap. Um, and, and this was a game where they should have been able to capitalize. I mean, Seattle's offense had been awful through the first two weeks. They haven't been able to get anything going. And then all of a sudden it looks like they're in the middle of that incredible run. They had to close the year last year where Russell Wilson was just kind of, uh, lighting the world on fire essentially. And 
they were struggling in this game with a lot of basic things. It felt like they, it, it was just, um, they had trouble getting lined up, uh, on, on a number of different occasions. Um, one of the first, like, uh, it was actually on the Christian Michael touchdown on the third play of the game. Um, chip confirmed after the game that they weren't aligned properly on that play. And when you kind of look at the, the, the coaches film there, it seemed to be an issue with Mike Purcell. Um, Mike Purcell was aligned head up over the center on that play. And, and really, when you look at the alignment of the rest of the front seven, um, he should have been kicked over one gap into the A gap on the weak side. Um, and what that allowed Seattle to do was now, okay, so they're on that play running outside zone to the weak side, which is, again, Purcell should be in the weak side A gap. So now they're kind of, the defense is kind of a man short on that side of the field. Now you're able to have an offensive lineman with the right guard who's on the backside cut Purcell and get him out of the way. Freeze up your center and your left guard now, which is, again, on the play side here, um, to get up to the second level and pick off your linebackers. And now all of a sudden you get this big gaping hole um, for Christian Michael to run through. And, I mean, it was maybe the easiest 41-yard run that he'll ever have. I mean, he was barely touched on the play. Um, it, it was just it, there was little things like this where they couldn't get in the right spots. You saw it on a number of other plays where you see guys kind of yelling at each other and um, trying to figure out what's going on and, and running around before the snap at the last minute. Uh, so there were just a lot of basic things like that that they they struggled with in this one. Now we've seen this sort. We've seen a story like this before. Last year we take you back about twelve months. And we were talking about Mangini's complicated schemes and how they had a different set of personnel and they've had different packages. Things were, quote unquote, exotic and he had a lot of different calls. It seems like so far, Jim O'Neill has a similar type of defense where you've got different pressure packages, different personnel packages. Maybe it's in an attempt to keep his defenders fresh over the course of the year. But either which way, this seems like in terms of package installation and pressure packages, a fairly complicated defense. Are we seeing another situation where we're going to hear in just a week or two about how the defense is getting better by simplifying things and that O'Neill is getting back to his core because it's you know too much too fast for this defense given all of the plays that they're running? Or is there something else, at, is there something else working here that, that is saying, you know what, I don't think it's a matter of complicated defense. I think it's just a matter of players not playing well. I mean, I think it's always going to be somewhat of a combination, right? Like you heard O'Neill this week say um, that he thinks a, a lot of the what's coming out about their defense being multiple is kind of overstated a little bit and that a lot of times it's, okay, we're we're really running the same stuff that we tend to run as like our base packages, but we're changing the responsibility of one or two players, right? Um, and now how much you want to buy into that and how much that's just kind of him uh, covering up and in coach speak, like you can really decide that for yourself. But, uh, I, I do think that it would work out poorly if they decide to go simple because really with where you see this defense at, and we'll talk about the pass rush a little bit more later and, and, um, kind of dig into that a little bit more, but this is a defense that can't afford to kind of sit back and play this simple, you know, we're going to drop seven into coverage, rush four and, and hope that works out. They don't have the guys up front to be able to get after the passer and they will get picked apart if they decide to go that route. So I, I think you have to figure it out. And there's, you know, with with any new defense and especially uh, a defense like coming from that Rex Ryan family of defenses, I think they're 
uh, certainly is a, an element where this is a bit more complicated of a scheme than than maybe you have as your average defense. But um, and and there's going to be kind of this like breaking in period where players are getting adjusted to that, and you would hope that they continue to get better over the season. I would rather see them try to kind of cons- uh, stick with what they're trying to do right now um, and stick with being, you know, a little bit more multiple and having these different packages and trying to to bring these different blitz packages because that's the having that eventually work out and having players adjust to that and eventually be able to execute is the, really, I think, their only hope of being good on defense this year because if they can't manufacture pass rush, like it's going to be a very, very long year for this defense. Now, one of the things that I mentioned last week was the effectiveness of the zone read. We know that the zone read is a core piece of Seattle's run offense. And when Seattle went to that zone read, which makes sense, they didn't go to it as often as they perhaps would in some games because Russell Wilson is operating on, uh, I guess, uh, three quarters of legs. And now he's working (laughs) on really two quarters of legs. So he's got one leg, basically, at this point between his... Like between his ankle like and his yeah. knee at this point he's working off of one combined leg and so he's got a lower <laughs> leg on one side upper leg on the other uh he's basically a pirate uh, but the seattle didn't go to the zone read often but when they did the 49ers just did not respond well um and you, you've got a couple different ways to defend the zone read and i was tweeting about this on game day one of the more common ways that you'll see defenders or defensive coordinators defend the zone read now is just to have the edge defender that's being read kind of squeeze down that backside hole and make a decision after that quarterback makes a decision. So if that quarterback hands it off, they continue crashing down and they try to get the running back on the backside. But if the quarterback keeps it, then that edge defender then goes after the quarterback and is able to get that quarterback. This when when it works well, it works out really well because you're not really compromising the structure of your defense too much. You're not doing anything like exchanging gaps. You're not doing anything where you're saying, you know what, go after the the running back at all costs and, and kind of those kinds of things that sometimes get you in trouble with a really athletic quarterback like like a Russell Wilson. But it was just it was clear that based on the way they were defending that zone read, the defensive end, which in some cases was Buckner, in some cases it was other it was other players, was getting so far washed that Eli Harold playing the edge had he, he couldn't squeeze that hole. He couldn't squeeze down because that gap was just so wide that the backside cutback was there all the time. And this happened on that second Christine Michael touchdown run. Um, you've got, you know, Brock and Harold sitting outside as though they have the QB. This was kind of a, a mistake where they were both kind of there. Buckner can't squeeze the hole. He gets pancaked. The linebackers, Gerald Hodges did not have a good game this week. Um, he seemed late all the time. It seemed like when he decided to go and towards the line of scrimmage, there was already an offensive lineman on him and he was five yards back. Um, you know, so it, it was just breakdowns all around, but I, I would, I w- hoped that we would have seen some kind of, you know, scrape exchange or gap exchange or something, make Russell Wilson, keep the ball and then blow him up. Um, and that's not what we saw. And all of a sudden the zone read gets broken out. Christine Michael's able to do his thing. And all of a sudden you've got another touchdown. I think the, the most concerning part of that is that this is a chip Kelly team. Like, as a defense, it's not the first time you've seen this before. Like you've been seeing this all throughout practice, all throughout the off season. Like this isn't anything new to you, right? Like even if you want to say, okay, this is like a young group of defenders and, and we're trying to get everything to coalesce and, and all of that sort of thing. Like you've seen the zone read before, like you've seen it in practice basically every day, I'm assuming. 
Um, there's no reason to not have kind of these basic responsibilities down. It's one thing if your assignments are sound and like they're just better, right? Like that's that's one thing you can live with that. Um, you're you're gonna deal with that with this team because again, they're they're not great. You're, there's gonna, gonna run into some teams that they just have better players on the other side. They're gonna out execute them, and that's how it is. Um, they they looked in like the touchdown play that you mentioned. Um, they they looked like they didn't know what was going on, right? They didn't know how to respond. There was nobody there. Um, you know, again, two guys kind of sitting on the quarterback, and, and especially when it's a Russell Wilson that's very hobbled, like we talked about before, like you want to force him to keep that, right? Like exactly, he that's be that's crashing it. down hard on the running back, forcing him to keep it. The only time that he had to keep it um, was the, and the I think the only reason that he actually did it was because it was third and one. Like there was a third and one play, he kept it because the end did crash down hard. He got just beyond the marker and slid. Like. Okay, that's fine. Whatever. Like that's a short yard situation. You're gonna live with that. But that, if you keep forcing him to do that, like those three yard gains, like those are much better than the eight and nine and twelve yard gains that they're ripping off. If you're sitting there on Russell Wilson and letting him hand off to Michael with a big gap there off the backside. Well, and I think that this is what frustrated me about this is that it, it seemed like an absolute lack of situational awareness from Jim O'Neill. And I don't mean situational awareness and like it's first down, it's second down, it's third down, or even, you know, the lineup or formation tells that you get when you know what's going to be a zone read, because just like San Francisco has some tells about their run game, so does Seattle. If you see Russell Wilson, Russell Wilson lineup in the shotgun and you see a running back offset to his side just a little behind him, you know, it's probably going to be one of their favorite zone read plays. And it, it to me, it was just a lack of awareness of this fact that you've got a hobbled Russell Wilson you've got a Russell Wilson that you want to run because you want to hit him and and it's really easy to force that you force that by telling that edge defender don't don't worry about the quarterback go straight to the running back go straight to the running back every single time and what's that going to do it's going to make the quarterback think that they have a keep read because they're going to see that edge defender go towards the running back they're going to pull the ball out and you scrape that linebacker over the top, and now you say, okay, now you linebacker, it's one-on-one, and you've got Gerald Hodges, who's a pretty athletic linebacker, and you've got to be able to hope that Gerald Hodges versus a hobbled Russell Wilson can win. And so it just the, the fact that that wasn't even a consideration, the fact that they tried to play it straight up, to me, is, is just not aware of the team that you're playing against and the state that you're playing them against. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to be more aggressive there. Like, and, and there's, again, there's a lot of things that you can do. Like, you can, uh, even if you're not going to scrape a linebacker over the top, like, you have all of these talented safeties, right? We've spent a lot of time talking about how you have these versatile safeties that are athletic, that can can move around and do a lot of different things. And one of those things is, okay, you send your end crashing down to the running back and make sure that you get that bottled up. And then you bring your safety around, right? Like you have your safety kind of fill that alley and be there if the quarterback decides to pull it. And, you know, you would hope again with a hobbled Russell Wilson that one of these safeties that when you have Eric Reed or Joukowsky Tart coming down there to fill that alley, like they're going to be able to make him pay for it. Um, you, you have to make that a mistake. Um, and, and they just didn't seem to have answers for it. The other thing they didn't seem to have answers for was, you know, anything in the middle of the field. Russell Wilson torched them in the middle of the field all game. Um, you know, according to pro football focus, 11 to 12 for 178 and a touchdown when throwing between the hash marks, I uh, completed all three of his throws that traveled at least 20 yards in the air between the hash marks, including that huge 59 yard 
uh, played a Doug Baldwin that was on third and forever. Like it was just kind of embarrassing the, the, the way they played defense in the middle of the field. I mean, uh, again, Baldwin Graham just kind of had a field day in that area. Graham, seven of his nine targets came between the hash marks. Uh, only one of those targets that came in the middle of the field was incomplete. That included a third and 15 conversion that came on for, uh, came in the first quarter um, where Eric Reed was. So this was another thing kind of defensively that I just really didn't understand and, and don't think that you could really justify um, aligning this way, essentially. So Reed will frequently play or whoever ends up being kind of their single high safety will play pretty deep uh, a lot of times, like especially if they're in man coverage, will play 20, 25 yards deep, and that's not terribly unusual for them. Um in this play, though, for instance, when you know that you're going to be in more of a zone look and that Bowman, who was kind of the guy that was by alignment over the top of Jimmy Graham in this situation, when you know that Bowman's not going to be carrying him vertically, like if he goes up that seam, you can't give that much space there. Like it just makes it too easy. And so what happens is Graham goes up the seam, Bowman settles into a zone that's a little bit underneath. And then all of a sudden you have this like 15 yard window in the middle of the field where there's nobody. Um, and it just makes it maybe the easiest third and 15 conversion that you're going to see. Um, and not only did he align super deep, but he also started backpedaling after the snap. So he's giving more yardage. Like I, I get, if you want to sit there, maybe try to read what's going on and then make a hard break for that pass. When you see somebody like Graham going up the seam, but it just wasn't like, I, I don't understand the way that you play it in that situation. Um, again, and then the Baldwin play, right? Like, you let your Tremaine Brock over there on the right-hand side, they're, they're playing kind of this uh, weird cover three cloud thing that's like a deep, um, you know, to, to account for the long yardage. It was a third and 14 play, so everybody's playing super deep. And you let Doug Baldwin just run by you. Uh, you have a 12-year, like you're standing basically at the first down marker when the snap uh, happens, and you just let the dude run by you. Russell Wilson, you're only rushing three on the play. Russell Wilson has all day to throw. Um, so there were just things like this where they just had nobody in the middle of the field. Um, they, they just, I don't, I don't know what they were doing from an alignment standpoint, from how you're going to allow players to get that wide open and to have that much space in these key situations. It just didn't make a lot of sense to me. And Doug Baldwin all of a sudden decided that he was going to turn into, uh, I think you said it best via text message, Antonio Brown, whenever he plays the 49ers, because yeah, he, caught eight of 10 I mean, he got crazy. eight of 10 targets for 164 yards and a touchdown. That one reception that he had on third down, I think it was in the first quarter where he stretches out and, and basically reaches out with one hand, pulls it in, lands right on the ball. The ball doesn't move. I mean, it, it, it was ridiculous. It was a ridiculous catch. You've got nothing but respect for that catch, but Apparently, he just decides that he's going to play when it comes to the 49ers. He caught passes against seven different defenders uh, per pro football focus. So the 49ers just had no answers for Baldwin. And, and it's it's not as though the Seattle offense is unpredictable or so exotic or so multiple that you don't know exactly what they're going to do. We know they're going to run that goddamn switch route with a wheel route coming off the side of it, which was one of their first long passes. You know they're going to run vertical routes, three or four verticals, especially with Jimmy Graham, now that he's healthy. You know they're going to run the zone read. You know their base run is the inside zone complemented with the outside zone and that zone read. These aren't difficult concepts. They're not difficult things, yet Russell Wilson is comfortable with all of these concepts. He can do them well. 
Um, and the 49ers simply didn't have an answer for them when re- in reality they, they should be things that this team should have answers for and not be letting players run free in the middle of the field. And there were even, I mean, there were several drives, several situations where they were able to do okay early in the down and distance, right? Like you, on first down, second down, you're able to to get some stops and put them in third and long. They actually ended up with, um, so Seattle on the day was 9 of 14 on third downs. Um, five of those third downs, though, and these all came in the first half, required 10 or more yards to convert. And Seattle converted four of them. And then the other one that they didn't was uh, a play where they picked up 10 yards on third and 11, like nearly did. Um, So you're giving up, right? You're doing your job early as a defense, putting them in these third and super long where they shouldn't be converting a high rate, right? Like maybe, okay, Seattle's a talented team. You're going to give them one of those plays. But like to convert four of five and nearly the fifth one um, is really just inexcusable as a defense. Like there's no way that you can allow that. And it was so much stupid things right like again the baldwin play the grand play that we already mentioned there was the other grand play which where russell wilson was basically i think the the broadcasters mentioned this really looked like they were playing 500 right like if you played that game as a kid where you just have a group of people that are standing 20 yards down uh the way and like one dude just throws it up and shouts a number out like that's what was happening on that grand play like he just stood there waited for the ball to come up ripped it out away from eric reed and like okay, there's another conversion on third and forever. Um, it, it's it's really hard to be successful as a defense when you're giving them plays like that, right? When you're just letting them have it. Like a lot of these weren't that difficult um, from Seattle's perspective, right? They they were kind of wide open there. So uh, that is is really hard to swallow as a defense. And you're not going to do what, like even if you're you're doing your job early and first and second down, when you give up plays like that, you're just not going to be successful. So that was our first big takeaway, and it was a big one, which is why I spent a lot of time on it, but it was how bad this defense looked against a limping and struggling Seahawks offense. But the second takeaway from the game is that Jim O'Neill simply must figure out a way to manufacture a pass rush. Given how bad Seattle's offensive line was and is currently, and how they've played over the last couple of weeks, the absolute lack of pressure from the 49ers was it just it was unacceptable. And 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 on top of that, you're going to rush three. I mean, God, you know how much we love rushing three on this podcast. We talked about it at length last year with Eric Mangini. Rushing three is never the answer ever, ever, ever. Um, unless maybe it's like a Hail Mary. And even then, sometimes it doesn't matter. Hashtag Aaron Rodgers. Hashtag Hail Mary. Um, <laughs> so. So, you know, it's just there, there was absolutely no pass rush against the team where if you're going to get sacks. This is the team you're going to get sacks on. Yeah, it was. Um, we spent a lot of time, I think, talking about it during the preview, where it, it was like, okay, this offensive line is really bad for Seattle. Like that, we're we're talking about five guys that are in brand new positions to start the year. Um, a lot of them have never had success at any position, regardless of of what team they were on. Um, like it, it's really kind of this mis, uh, mismatch. They can't unit. even play tuba. They can't even play tuba. Even right. Jordan Devi. Right. Even Jordan Devi had the additional skill no of playing skills. the tuba. None of these assholes Whatsoever. can say that. Um, it, it's. I mean, they they were really embarrassed over the first two weeks. Like this was a really bad unit, and so you expect it again with the 49ers' supposed strength to be the defensive line. Like that's where you've really spent uh, your last two first round picks. Like you have a lot of players that you've invested in in that position over the last few years and that they just didn't come through at all. Like 
And I get you don't have anybody off the edge and an outside linebacker really isn't in a good spot right now, especially with Aaron Lynch out. But you would expect your guys like Buckner and Armstead that you've spent these first round picks on to be able to do something against this group. Right. I get that Armstead is dealing with a shoulder injury like DeForest Buckner. He's playing his third game as a pro. Like those are understandable things. You're not asking them to be Aaron Donald all of a sudden but you would expect them to do something like, and really in this game, they were pretty much non-factors like Buckner. And I think he's the one that really is worth spotlighting this week. Like he's kind of the guy, it was hard to pick, I think one player from this defense because collectively they were just kind of so bad. And you talked about, um, you know, in pass coverage, right? Baldwin caught passes against seven different guys. Like it wasn't like he was picking on one player the entire game. Same thing goes for the run defense. It wasn't one guy the entire time that was struggling, that was leading to some of these bigger runs. Um, but Buckner, I think, considering the situation, like considering the the competition that you're playing, what really is expected from, from him and how he's even played over the first couple of weeks, right? He had looked pretty good in those first couple of games. So uh, it, it was really disappointing to see him basically be a non-factor. Uh, again, in the pass rush was really bad. The run game was a little bit more hit or miss. He did have a few stops in this game and like had a few plays uh, where he looked like uh, the the player that we would hope he would be in the run game. But there were other times we mentioned the the Christian Michael touchdown, the second one on the zone replay where he basically gets pancaked inside. There were a number of similar plays where he just kind of gets taken out of it and gets washed inside and you're not seeing him impose as well. And it's hard to, to see that contrasted with like there was one play where um, the, the left tackle tried to, again, move him inside on one of those outside zone plays. And he just like hooks him and tosses him to the ground. And you're just like, dude, where was that? The other like 15 times they ran this play and you got nearly put on your back. Like, uh, I, so I, so I don't know where he's at from a consistency standpoint right now. Uh, I don't know. I'd like, I, I really don't have an explanation for why we're seeing kind of that drastic swing in play, um, beyond the fact that he's a rookie and rookies are inconsistent at times, but, uh, he's somebody that we definitely need to see more from going forward. So DeForest Buckner is the spotlight player of the week for us this week, and not for good reasons, but because he was an inconsistent force against an inferior opponent. And, you know, we talked about, we opened up this this segment talking about the pass rush, and, you know, you, you saw a little bit higher blitz percentage this game than you did the week before. Um, but even when Aaron Lynch returns, I mean, Ahmad Brooks had he was basically the only defender that was able to do much of anything in the pass rush. Um, and luckily when Lynch returns, you'll have, you know, Brooks and Lynch on either side, but even with Aaron Lynch back, you're still not going to have the personnel to simply get after the quarterback with four. You're still going to have to blitz a whole lot. And I'm sorry, but you're going to have to come up with a, a better blitz than just blitzing Eric Reed or Chris Davis off the edge. I, I don't understand how, with the defensive line talent that you have, you think it's better to send a 5'10 defensive back against an offensive lineman or a running back as opposed to a 6'1 or a 6'7 defensive lineman. I just don't see why you think that's effective. I don't. And Eric Reed is great. Sure, he's playing better this year than he's played in a long time. But if I see another freaking defensive back blitz off the edge, then I just it's just like, why bother? Why bother? We know that it's possible, right, to get pressure. You're not going to turn into the Broncos suddenly when you don't have kind of the horses up front to to be able to get after the passer and win one-on-one situations. But 
I think the Cardinals are a fantastic example in recent years, right? Like for the last two, three years, essentially, the Cardinals haven't had anyone that stands out as like a single Von Miller-esque presence as a, a pass rusher, right? Like they don't have that dominant guy off the edge, um, but they've still been able to have a very effective pass rush because they had a defensive coordinator that is able to be creative with their blitz packages and, and kind of manufacture that sort of pressure um, without having to have guys like just beat the left tackle every single time, right? Like you have to come up with ways to put your guys in position to, to get after the quarterback. Um, and you would hope that coming from, you know, again, that uh, Rex Ryan, Mike Pettin family of defenses that have had success with that, right? Like Rex has had success with that as basically his entire coaching career. Um, so, so we know that he has kind of those packages in his arsenal. He has to find things that work with this group and that allow them to get that pressure because otherwise this defense is going to be in rough shape throughout the rest of the year. Yeah. So finally, the last takeaway from this game is that the pass protection has pretty much continued to hold up fairly well. And it's for a couple of different reasons, right? One of them is that the offensive line is just better. Uh, the other is going to be that, well, Blaine Gabbard is just going to get the ball out really quickly, irrespective of how far he needs to get the ball downfield. <laughs> because you know what? Three yards, man. That's three yards in a cloud of dust. That's that's really all he's about. But the the league or, or the 49ers have the league's best adjusted sack rate after three weeks, uh, allowing a pressure or a hit really on just, just shy of 2% of their passes. They've only allowed two total quarterback hits. That's one sack and two hits. And that one sack was given up by none other than... But um, Marcus Martin. Uh, so really, Which it's, doesn't it's a even bunch- count. Like that's not even a real thing. <laughs> He's still employed. Um, proof that you don't need to do your job well. You just need to do your job. Uh, so yeah, so it's uh, surprisingly well for a multitude of reasons. But hey, our quarterback is not uh, an absolute. Um, he's not going to get Derek Card, despite the fact that he already has Derek or David Carr syndrome. Yeah, I mean, it's looked better than it has at any point since probably like the 2013 season from this group. Like, uh, and, and even then, right, it started to go downhill, I think, towards the latter half of that year. But uh, it, it's it's kind of surprising, I, I think, because the offensive line hasn't been great across the board, right? They've really struggled uh, in the run game, and, and that's led to a lot of other problems. But from a pass protection standpoint, kind of those combination of things, the offensive line playing much better in that respect, um, you know, some scheme things like I think the, the the high amount of play action that they have really helps the offensive line out. Um, and again, Gabbert, uh, whether it's a good thing for the offense or not, uh, gets the ball out very quickly. So uh, even in situations where maybe he should hang on to it a little bit, uh, it really does make you wonder what Colin Kaepernick could look like in this offense behind this offensive line if he's healthy. We're not that that's not a conversation for today. Um, but considering the problems and we've talked at length about Colin Kaepernick and what he struggles with. And the biggest thing is dealing with pressure in the pocket. Right. And if all of a sudden you give him a little bit cleaner of a pocket to work from um, and he's actually healthy and he can, you know, potentially regain some of the accuracy that he had early in his career, because at least with him, we've seen it right. Like Blaine Gabbert, he's never been an accurate passer at any point in his career, like pro or college, even his college completion percentage rates were very low for college quarterbacks. Like they were, it was like 56% or something like that, which in college, that's abysmal. 
Yeah, and it, it, for his career, I think he was like at 50. I, I looked at this for the article that I had. It was like 58 or something uh, in that respect. And I, the only time he topped 60 was his final year, which it was 63%, like a little over 63. So um, he's never shown it, right? Like the, to expect Blaine Gabbert to suddenly become accurate is is just a pipe dream at this point. Like we have a large, large sample of pass attempts that tells us that Blaine Gabbard isn't good at playing quarterback and hasn't shown that at any point with Colin Kaepernick. It's more of a mixed bag, right? We have this season and a half of him being really good and being a very accurate quarterback. And then we have another season and a half of him being not very good and not very accurate. So uh, I, I would be more willing to bank on or hoping for that first, you know, half of Colin Kaepernick's career to come back than for Blaine Gabbard to do something that he's never done before. Well, you said it wasn't going to be a discussion for today, but you kind of teased it a little bit. Uh, and I think that really the takeaway is that Colin Kaepernick needs to get on that Eli Harold uh, smoothie powder diet. Right. For real. Both him and Richard Robinson, I think, need to jump on that smoothie powder train uh, and, and get some bulk. Come on, uh, Harold. Stop, stop holding out, man. Help your guys yep, out. I'm saying. I'm saying. Uh, so really quick and, and really, really quick because we've got to get to the stat of the week, but one of the articles that came out recently was from Greg. We, we were talking about the offensive line and the pass protection for the quarterbacks. And he said that Trent Brown is a good player, but that Trent Brown may not fit Chip Kelly's scheme. Just like, yay or nay. Agree. You're nodding emphatically right yes, now. Yes, absolutely. I mean, this was something that, that I said before the season, right? Several times that he doesn't fit this run game. And, and it shows because right now, Trent Brown is a much better pass protector and he is a run blocker like he has struggled in the run game because he's not athletic enough to carry out these plays that they need him to be able to carry out. I, I completely agree with that. I think he could be a good player at this point, um, much better than I would have expected a year ago. But he he's not a great fit here. And that's, you know, not to bring it too much back to that. But that's why it's disappointing to see Anthony Davis leave is because I think he is a bit more athletic at that position and would have been a better fit for this offense, even if you think Trent Brown is a more talented player in a vacuum. Reach blocks be hard and cut blocks are even harder when you're six, seven. So let's get to the stat of the week. And this week it's going to be all about the 49ers success rate on third down against the Seattle Seahawks with less than five yards to go. You think that when you're in third down and five or shorter, that your offense is roughly on schedule that you're you should be able to convert those and yet the 49ers success rate on third down with less than five yards to go was just 30 percent it was actually three out of ten right on the dot three out of ten now what's funny about that is that all three successes were effectively in garbage time and two of them came with under four minutes to go so at that point you know, you, you, it really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. In, in all of the third downs of consequence with less than five yards, with five or fewer yards to go, the 49ers were 0 for 7. Uh, and uh, that's pretty abysmal. Um, and I think some of this goes to, we talked a lot about this, uh, this offseason when we were talking about building an offensive game plan. We talked about Brian Billick and uh, his book on building a game plan, he talks about how oftentimes your first downs are gained on first or second down and how that will often be indicative of successful third down teams when you're able to do positive things on first and second down. And the 49ers uh, had, were 14 for 22 on first down plays, uh, or rather 14 of their 22 first down plays went for three yards or less. Uh, so they're not picking up yards on first or second down. And uh, even when they do, and they're in third and five or fewer, uh, they're 0 for 7 against Seattle. And that's how you end up 
with a really shitty offense. So, David, let's get to the quick hits. Uh, some quick NFL things that we're going to get to real, real quick. Let's go right to it. Number one, are the Eagles and the Vikings the class of the NFC? Not yet, but they're off to a fantastic start. The Eagles sit atop the value over average boards, and the Vikings defense is legit. Uh, so number two, are the Ravens the worst 3-0 team in recent memory? Ooh. Uh, m- maybe. Probably. Ooh, are there, what other 3-0 teams are there I'm that think are of, worse? Uh, I, I, I feel like it was the... the and I'm, I'm kind of mixing this up, which is why I didn't want to <laughs> say it uh, explicitly, but I feel like the Cardinals uh, a couple of years ago started off really well, but like nothing about their performance suggested that it was going to stick, and then they had an awful second half. I don't know if they were 3-0 or uh, exactly what the record was, um, but the Cardinals a couple of years ago were like that, where they had a fantastic record early in the first half of the year. Nothing about that was sustainable, and then they tanked in the second half. So that I was like to up call there. This, but yeah. I like to call this the uh, Atlanta Falcons rule, where the, where the Atlanta Falcons always have a better record than what they actually are, and they're absolute paper tigers, and then they end up losing all the time in the playoffs because they're the Falcons. Nobody would have guessed the Ravens would have been 3-0 to start the season. Oh, no, not at all. Um, so is Carson Palmer. Finally coming back down to earth, he had a 36 quarterback rating versus the Bills. Uh, the Bills. The freaking Bills. Um, I, mean, I think maybe, and it's not that surprising, right? Like, there was a lot of suggestion that, Colin, or that Carson Palmer wasn't uh, ever going to be a good quarterback again, and then suddenly last year happened. He has a career year. Um, the dude's 36. Like, it's it's not that surprising. I, I mean, I don't think he'll be this bad uh, throughout the rest of the year, but... When quarterbacks fall off, man, they fall off, and it's just over for them. Yeah, they do fall off a cliff. Uh, will Odell Beckham Jr. be ejected this season for two unsportsmanlike penalties in any game? Yes. Where can I put money on this? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I want that to be a money line, too. Uh, I want there to be, like, a bonus, though, like a parlay. Like, he gets ejected, and he cries. <laughs> I think I think that's that's the move. I think that's the move. That would be a good one, yeah. Yeah, right. Um, (laughs) And then finally, the final question uh, is, is the Ryan Fitzpatrick of week three the best Ryan Fitzpatrick or the absolute best Ryan Fitzpatrick? The absolute best. Uh, I I think my favorite thing was uh, the Ryan six six Pickrick, I think. Ryan six Patrick, I think, would be. Um, I would say six Patrick would would work. That, That makes a bit more sense. But I see what you're trying to do. Yeah, I think it was Chase Stewart changed his Twitter name to that, uh, if I remember correctly there. Um, fantastic. Like, it, it was just, um, like, I think that maybe what illustrates it best uh, from Pro Football Focus's grades, he had, he went from having one of the best performances in week two, where he was on the the PFF team of the week that has, like, the best graded players at each position for that week, right, to basically having the worst performance any quarterback has had by any reasonable measure. Like it was the worst grade that pro football focus has handed out for a quarterback. It was the worst game measured by uh DR by football outsiders. Like just everything about that performance was like worst ever or worst we've ever measured sort of thing. Uh, and it could have been worse. Like he had six interceptions. He left, he left a couple of picks <laughs> on the table. He was trying hard to turn the ball over in that game like he could have had eight or nine or something stupid like that like yeah it, it was a, a brilliant effort 
from the my the favorite Harvard my man. favorite one my favorite one was where he should have had three interceptions on one play in the end zone where two Chiefs players tipped it and then it finally gets intercepted. It's like he, he how does one quarterback throw three what what effectively is three interceptable passes and only throws the ball once? I think it's 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 perfect it's perfect Fitzy. A special uh, breed to do that. That's right. That's right. That wraps up our week three coverage. Let's switch then to a preview of the upcoming game against the Dallas Cowboys. This is a game that's being played in San Francisco, and we've got three things to watch um, because I won't be watching it. I'll be at ACL. Woo, festivals. Yeah, we're at Austin. Um, yeah, dude, the lineup this year is awesome. LCD Sound System, Radiohead, Kendrick Lamar, Schoolboy Q. Um, it's going to be, yeah, Flying Lotus is playing. Um Chris Stapleton, although he's, I think, competing with someone else that I really don't want to see. Um, Flume is also playing. I actually really like his album, The Traveler. It's a damn fine album, I will say. Um, Flume is also playing. It's going to be a great lineup. So I will be partying my balls off and probably a little drunk and a little hungover. And I will definitely be sporting my Niners gear, keeping up with the game. So tweet at me if you can, but probably won't be watching it live. Uh, but we've got three things to watch. First and foremost, I feel like we're having deja vu. I feel like we've been here before. Can the 49ers take advantage of a limping Cowboys team coming into the game, nursing several injuries? You've got an offensive line that seems injured. <laughs> You've got Lyle Collins. He's a left guard. He's got a fractured foot. He is out. Tyron Smith, their left tackle, is day-to-day with a back injury. He missed the game against Chicago. Doug Free, not so free. The right tackle is limited with a quad injury. Uh, So this is an offensive line. And then, of course, Des Bryant, of course, has that knee fracture that might hold him out. So you might be facing the fighting Cole Beasley's. Also, Uh, how does a knee fracture not certainly hold you out? That sounds terrible. I don't want to have a knee fracture. Like... That doesn't sound like a thing that I would move like I would just be immobile at that point. You know what I imagined as soon as I heard that it was a knee fracture immediately. And this is how terrible of a human I am. My immediate thought was Jaquaski Tart flying at his legs, trying to tackle him and getting a helmet on his knee. Wow. Yeah, that's real bad. Don't want to think well, like, about that at n- all. Not even, not even as like a, that's what I want to happen to Des because I like watching Des play football. I think he's a good football player. But like that's why I think a knee fracture would hold you out because you get a helmet to the knee. You're not talking about a knee fracture. You're talking about getting Teddy Bridgewater at that point. Ah, no, don't want to even think about that. Um, so let's move on to a completely different topic. Um, <laughs> I, so, so but, I mean, with this offensive line, right? Like. The offensive line is when when fully healthy, the probably the best in football. Um, and, and so this isn't like a Seattle offensive line, right? Where it's like, okay, these guys are really bad. They're not good. They've never been good at football. They're playing new positions. They're doing weird things because Tom Cable thinks he's some sort of like evil genius, whatever. Um, I don't know. So Collins like hasn't honestly been playing. Like that one might not hurt them that much. Like he really is quietly not been playing very well also dude got i don't know if you guys were watching uh the the sunday night game against chicago dude got blown up by a linebacker uh it was maybe one of the funnier things that i saw all week like linebackers blitzing and just like gets up underneath him uh and he's not really ready for it and sends him like stumbling backwards five six yards and then onto his back uh was the real firing funny. 
firing less miles does no one any good, especially former LSU Tigers. That's really the takeaway. Yeah, I mean, and then so I think the tackles are the more interesting part, right? Because uh, with with Collins out and they can stick. Uh, uh, what's the dude's name? Um, I'm going to look at it here. In just a minute. I'm gonna look it up. You, uh, Leary. you keep talking. I'll look it up. Yeah. So it's it's Leary. He's going to stick in there at, at left guard. Um, but when you're playing next to Travis Frederick and, and Zach Martin there on the interior, like not super worried about who's filling in at that spot. The tackles are more concerning. So. Um, with Tyron Smith, I mean, when he's healthy and in there, he's one of the best tackles in football. Um, Doug Free is kind of the weak link um, when everybody's healthy. And so you would imagine that if he's in there as the starter, whoever is backing him up at that spot, that's going to be you where you would hope to kind of attack and, and have some sort of advantage in this game. Um, but again, if you can't take advantage of that Seattle offensive line, like, it's it's really hard to expect them to do something against this line. Like even when it's banged up, you still have two guys that are basically all pro caliber players on the interior um, that, that are really going to help them out. So uh, this Cowboys team might not be at full strength, but I think their offense still poses like a pretty considerable challenge for this defense right now. The only glimmer of hope I think that 49ers have is that it is a home game. And for whatever reason, you have this home road split. Last year, they were the 14th ranked defense based on DVOA at home. And they were dead last on the road. And so far, this seems to be a continuing trend. You have a shutout against the Rams at home. Uh, and then you've got a game against Carolina and a game against uh, the Seattle Seahawks where the defense is not playing well. Now you come back home. If you're able to play well at home, then there's definitely something there, some kind of mojo at Levi's that helps that defense play well. But that's, I think, the only glimmer of hope for the 49ers to be able to capitalize against a a limping Cowboys offense. But the second really key for the game is going to be Dak Prescott and play action. Uh, Dak Attack, the Dak Prescott. He's, uh, hey man, I love that nickname. I love the (laughs) Dak Attack. There's there's so much there that you can do with that name. Um, You know, (laughs) I, I remember the GAC. Do you remember the GAC, the, the toy yeah. like in the 90s? Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's so many ceilings have <laughs> GAC, I'm sure, still on their ceiling. Because back then you still had a lot of popcorn ceiling, right? And yeah. that was just that was just like Velcro for GAC. Um, and you and like a big chunk of it would come down, but you still had like the stuff stuck in the grooves. You're looking at me like I'm crazy, uh. but I'm, I'm serious, man. This is my childhood. This is my childhood. <laughs> Um, but the Cowboys offense um, ranks fourth in DVOA really because of a balanced attack. They're fifth in pass offense, third in run offense. Um, but their dominant run game really is what's helping Dak's ability in play action. He's a completely different quarterback when he's using play action. With play action, he's got an 82.1% completion percentage and has 9.5 yards per attempt. But without play action, he's an oh-so-pedestrian, 60.6% completion and 7.1 yards per attempt. That was sarcasm on the pedestrian part, by the way, because I think 49ers fans would absolutely murder someone for a quarterback <laughs> who could hit 60% completion and 7.1 yards per attempt. Uh, we might be uh, like 2-1 and one or 3-0 and oh if we had a quarterback who could do that. Um, so, so, yeah. So, I mean, this is a quarterback who is definitely helped by the pieces around him, helped by the offensive line, helped by the run game, but who is taking advantage of his opportunities when the Cowboys put the ball in his hands. Yeah, he's, I mean, he's looked really good. Uh, he, he's been impressive. And again, there are some things that are helping him out, right, that are that are putting him in some advantageous situations. 
Um, but the, the play action, I think, has really been a big thing because there, there's really been two things that, that have helped him out considerably. And I think one uh, is that they've been going empty. And, and Zach Robinson broke this down for Pro Football Focus, uh, I think, today, um, a, who is a, a former quarterback and uh, it does some, some great work for PFF. Um, and he kind of talked about some things that, that's been going on with Dak so far and why he's been grading so well for them. Um, and really it's been, so play action has been a, a big thing and it's, you see those linebackers come up, right? Like obviously you have to respect the threat of that run game. The run game has been very good. The offensive line's good. Zeke has been getting better with each game. Um, and, and so you have to kind of respect that run threat when they show it. And then what that does is bring up all of the linebackers closer to the line of, sc- line of scrimmage and opens up this area in the middle of the field. And that's really where Dak has been doing most of his work. So um, so far this year on throws between the hash marks and 10 to 19 yards downfield, so that kind of intermediate area, he's completed 10 of 11 passes for 191 yards and one touchdown with a passer rating of 149.1. Uh, only Drew Brees has a better quarterback rating on those throws. So uh, been very impressive in that area. And, and a lot of that is, you know, again, what Cowboy, the Cowboys are doing offensively to help him out. Um, but they also tend to go empty a lot. So uh, and, and one of the things that, that Zach talks about in that uh, article is that, you know, you, when you go empty, you really simplify things for your quarterback because uh, the defense has to spread out a bit and kind of define themselves more from a coverage standpoint. Also, it's easier to identify blitzes when you're you're an empty um, and so they tend to go to that a lot stick somebody like Des Bryant or uh, Cole Beasley or Jason Witten on the interior and let them go to work in the middle of the field. And that's where Zach's uh, Dak's really been making, uh, you know, kind of his mark so far through three games. So I think, again, as we talked about in the Seahawks recap, that was uh, an area where the 49ers defense struggled. Like they, they gave up a lot of yards in the middle of the field last week. And so they need to figure out a way to be able to respond and account for those type of throws this week against the Dallas offense that's going to be looking there frequently. So when you think about the the personnel and the scheme for a team like this, when they go empty, when they go spread, what kind of personnel would you like to see Jim O'Neill employ for something like this? Because you've got you've got a couple of things to account for, right? When we saw their switch from more of a, a spread team where they saw against Los Angeles. They played more of that 3-3-5 with three safeties. But then you came against Carolina, and it was a more run-heavy offense with you know a lot of two wide receiver sets and one wide receiver sets, and, and they ran their 3-4. Mike Purcell played a whole lot. And against Seattle, you saw a mix of the two. You saw them stick to their base, even though there were, you know, they were in, in some three wide formations because they were anticipating the run. Sometimes they were right, sometimes not so right. But what do you think is going to be the lean here against the Cowboys? Do you think they're going to mo- go more traditional 3-4 base? Or do you expect more of that of that nickel or 3-safety look? I think more of the nickel look still. Like, the Cowboys are still a team that, that goes to 11 personnel pretty frequently. So three wide receivers on the field. Um, they, they don't go to, uh, you know, two tight ends or, or any run-heavy packages too often. I mean, they definitely have them. Like, they'll put two tight ends on the field. But usually it's Jason Witten. And then your three receivers um, that might change, you know, depending on Des Bryant's status. Like, obviously, if you remove him from the equation, that changes your your approach a little bit. So I think his status is going to certainly be important to that. But I, I, I think they're better off going to more of that kind of big nickel. 
Um, it's going to be hard without Jimmy Ward, right? If like he doesn't play in that game, then I don't think they have somebody that matches up well with Cole Beasley on the inside. Um, and so I think that could end up being a problem. Um, they have to figure out something against the tight ends, right? Like they have to determine who is going to be able to handle Jason Witten um, be, because he's still somebody that is looked to like, right? Even he's been Tony Romo's favorite forever, but Dak's still looking to him pretty frequently. Um, and, and he's had still a big impact on this passing game. So I think we see more of the three safety look. I think we need to to have, you know, somebody like Eric Reed or Tart matched up with Witten on most snaps and try to avoid having a linebacker on him because I think that's really uh, kind of bad news. But, um, yeah, I, it'll be interesting to see what they do. I, I, one thing I think they need to try to do, um, and, again, this is consistent with what we were mentioning uh, in the Seahawks game, is I think we do need to see a more blitz-heavy approach. Like, that really hasn't been blitzed that heavily, um, you know, so far this year. And I think you have to, you have to try to put a lot of guys, like if it were me, I would sell out to try to stop the run game and to put pressure on him, like load up guys in the line of scrimmage. Cause one thing he hasn't done very well, like one of the few flaws in his game is throwing deep down the field, right? Like this isn't Russell Wilson. He's not somebody that's going to throw the ball 20 plus yards downfield and have a lot of success. So most of his work has been, in that short to intermediate area. So I think you, you need to really find a way to like bring your, your defense up, kind of compact things a little bit and really send a lot of guys after him and give him some different looks um, and hope that you can fluster him again. He's still a rookie. Like just because he's had a good, you know, first few weeks and you know, the defenses that he played have been kind of meh, like especially Chicago uh, has a pretty awful defense. And so it wasn't surprising to see him uh, have a good performance against them. But I think you have to bring heavy blitz, sell it to stop the run, and and you know take your chances with him beating you downfield. And when you say his deep accuracy is not good, you're not just saying like oh, yeah, like forty percent. No, his adjusted completion percentage on passes traveling twenty plus yards in the air is twelve point five percent. That's one. not good. He's completed yeah. one of those passes. One of eight. That's not. Uh, that's not good. Yeah. Uh, even uh, even in Colin Kaepernick's worst year, he was at like thirty six percent. Um, so it's it's pretty bad. So if you think about play action being a key, you think about the 49ers being able to take advantage uh, or not take advantage of an offensive line. Really, the third thing to look for against this Cowboys game is going to be the battle between Buckner and Armstead and Frederick and Martin. It's going to be the microcosm of how this team is going to react against an injured offensive line and really a hobbling offense altogether. You've got Travis Frederick uh, and Martin, who are two of the best players at their position at both the run and the pass. They each have graded really high based on pro football focuses charting at their respective positions this year. Uh, and, and so really, that's the critical component of the Cowboys zone run game and the critical component of really making sure that Dak doesn't get pressure up the middle. So you've got Buckner and Armstead who have played well. Armstead is playing well when he plays. The problem is, is that he is in and out because of his shoulder injury and Buckner has played well the first two games and then inconsistent here in the third game. So how those two players are able to step up to Frederick Martin and, and what is more than likely Leary is, is going to be an interesting battle to watch in the trenches. Yeah. I, I think there's, you know, when we spent a lot of time talking this episode about each of these guys, right about Buckner and Armstead and, and kind of what they did against Seattle and what they've done this season um, and how they really need to be kind of the core components of this defense. Um, and again, the offensive line is really a big strength for Dallas and especially those interior guys. And so you really just want to see how they respond. I mean, I don't think there's a lot 
when you when you move outside of the trenches, there's not a lot of interesting one-on-one matchups, right? Like there certainly isn't anything when the 49ers offense is on the field because 49ers offense right now is just awful and there's nothing interesting about them being on the field right now. Um, but defensively, like when you look out on the perimeter, especially with Jimmy Ward out, right? Like there's not a lot of great individual matchups there. So I, I, I think I'm really going to be paying attention to how these two, you know, young 49ers defensive linemen that are supposed to be kind of the marquee players here, how do they respond to having a pretty poor game against a bad offensive line? How do they play against a, you know, a more significant challenge and two of the better players at their position? Uh, I, I think it will be, I don't expect them again to be Aaron Donald and go out there and, and just cause all sorts of havoc on every single snap. But you'd like to see them have some sort of an impact in this game, right? Like be able to push the pocket, be able to win some snaps. Like if they go out there and just get dominated, I think that's a very bad sign for this 49ers defense for the rest of the season. Uh, given the 49ers performance against Seattle, I'm not expecting much, honestly. I just, I don't, I don't think that you can lay that kind of egg against a, a just a bad offensive line. It's a bad offensive line. There's no other way to say yeah. it. They are a bad offensive line. And then go up against an offensive line that even when injured is probably one of the best in football or at least one of the top five in football. And I expect that you're going to do a whole hell of a lot. If they do, then I, I then who the hell knows? I, I don't know what, you know, up is down, down is up. You know, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria, who knows? Um, but with that all said... What's your prediction for the game so far this year? We're both two and zero straight up, but we're zero and two against the spread. That damn Vegas spread always gets us, gets us every time. Those guys are good. Turns out, yeah, yeah. Fuck those guys. <laughs> um, but <laughs> so, what's what's your pick? Both straight up and against the spread. So I think the, the line is uh, two and a half. By the way, two and a half points for the Cowboys. Yeah, that's the the, the consensus line right now from VegasInsiders.com. So. Uh, I think I'm still, I mean, I'm still going to go Cowboys winning this. Um, I, I think, you know, the Cowboys defense has some problems. I think we'll see the 49ers offense look a little bit more competent this week than they did over the last two. Um, you know, maybe a little bit more similar to what we saw in the the St. Louis game. Um, but I, 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 I'm not confident in the defense to be able to match up with them. Like, I think Dallas is going to be able to run the ball. Um, I, I think they're going to have some success there. And I think that Dak's going to be able to get his opportunities you know, in some advantageous looks because the team's a little bit more concerned with the run game. So uh, I, I like the Cowboys to win the game. I think they cover like, you know, again, you're, you're only talking about a field goal here difference. Um, really, the the spread considering the 49ers at home suggests that Cowboys are about five and a half points better than the 49ers is kind of what Vegas is saying right now. Um, and again, the 49ers do play better at home, like for whatever reason over the last year and a half. Um, they've been a much different team there. So I think that we get a little bit more points in this game. Like I think 49ers offense again is able to look somewhat more confident, uh, competent. Um, I'm going to go Cowboys 27, um, 49ers 20. Yeah, I think the Cowboys cover. I think they win. And I think I'm never going to hear the end of it from my cousin, which is going to be obnoxious. So Hugo, if you're listening, a preemptive fuck you. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that's I mean, I think I, I don't think I think the score will be. Yeah, I'm thinking like 24, maybe 27. I'm going to go. I think. Yeah, I think 27 feels about right. It feels like they'll get a field goal in there. They'll get a couple touchdowns. 
Um, and yeah, I think 20 something. Yeah. I think 27, 20 looks and feels about right. About a touchdown difference. Um, and yeah, I think that's, that's what it's going to be. I think really the only thing left is, is the outro. We'll, uh, we'll close it down. We got to think of the call to action though. We don't have one yet. Yeah. I haven't had, uh, God, it's just been such a depressing show to talk about this game that there haven't been any fun. You can probably to, to pull you can out. probably even check our energy level, right? Like we came on to the beginning of the show, and we're like, "All right, got yeah. to do a show." I mean, it's just it's gonna suck. It's rough talking about <laughs> games like this. Like you, you want to see them be at least competent, like at least find some interesting things. Like I, I honestly couldn't get through so. At this point, I'm not really able to watch games live most of the time. Like I'm working all day Sunday doing PFF stuff. So uh, I I usually watch these like Monday morning sometimes. Like sometimes I just have to wait for the coach's tape to come up. Um, And it was like there was no point in getting beyond the first half of this game. Like I watched the defense until Russell Wilson went out, the offense until about halftime or so. And it was so far out of hand at that point that there's really nothing to gain. Like it's just it's, it's hard to watch those every week. So, I, yeah, I mean, I, did, I just hope that we see something more entertaining, something to keep us interested. Because, again, we, we didn't expect this team to be good this year. Like, we, I think we had, yeah, five, just a better five, five and 11. Wins. It's just we want to see them be more competent, have some, some positive signs there to look forward to, you know, for seasons beyond this one. Uh, so, so, hopefully, we can start that against a Dallas team that, while good, I don't think is, is quite to the level of competition that we've seen from Carolina and Seattle last two weeks. And the only call to action that I've got then based on that is just hope. Just hashtag hope. <laughs> hashtag hope. hope for something. Hashtag don't make my eyes bleed when watching this on Tuesday. There you go. That, that's an even better one. Hashtag don't make my eyes bleed. <laughs> um, and, and with that, my friends, we'll go ahead and kick the, uh, the outro music and we'll say good evening uh, to those of you that are listening immediately as it posts if you want to do that you can always subscribe on itunes subscribe on soundcloud or subscribe on stitcher or tune in subscribe on your favorite podcast listening device and or thing of choice uh, but you can always catch us on niners nation david you've got an article coming up on friday uh with your thoughts about the game some items we've talked about here some things we haven't uh and you can always follow us on twitter you can follow me at better rivals uh, david where can they follow you at david newman with a sad little underscore at the end Yep, stupid underscore. Uh, And thanks again to the Barbary Sound for our wonderful music. Uh, And we'll be watching the game, even if on tape delay. Uh, But as always, go Niners. I'm Spencer Hall from SB Nation, and I want to tell you about my new show, It Seems Smart. It Seems Smart is a show about people doing things that, for some reason or another, seem smart at the time. Those things might include doing a little cocaine and driving a bike up a mountain, or, I don't know, maybe racing 100 miles per hour across the country in the middle of the night with no one's permission, or even stealing a bat from an umpire's room in a Major League Baseball park. Check it out, and if you like it, tell a friend. I'm Spencer Hall. Don't do anything smart. <laughs>